Hello everyone and welcome to the October 12th edition of the WorkComp Academy Daily News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney of the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that Labor Code Section 5500.5 contribution can be timely initiated by simply filing a declaration of readiness to proceed for a contribution issue. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company versus the WCAB and Guide One Mutual Insurance Company. Charles Lewis filed a claim against Horizon Christian Fellowship that occurred in 2015, and he also filed a cumulative trauma lower back injury. Horizon was insured by Guide One Mutual Insurance, Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, during the alleged continuous trauma. Thus, Guide One filed a petition for joinder of Brotherhood as an additional party under Labor Code 5500.5. Guide One and Charles Lewis filed compromise and release agreements, which the work comp judge approved on September 17, 2018. About five months after approval of the CNR, Guide One filed a declaration of readiness to proceed on the issue of, quote, joinder order issued October 16, 2018. Brotherhood filed an objection to the declaration readiness to proceed, stating it needed more time to prepare before a hearing takes place on contribution issues. Guide 1 later filed another DOR on the issue of contribution, and a conference was set for December 2019. Brotherhood argued that Guide 1's claim for contribution was barred because it had not timely submitted a pleading titled Petition for Contribution by September 17, 2019, one year after the compromise and release was approved. Guide 1 argued that its January 18, 2019 Declaration of Readiness alone was sufficient to initiate contribution proceedings. The arbitrator agreed and issued an order rejecting Brotherhood's arguments and noted in his decision that although a better practice is the filing of an actual petition for contribution, the declaration of readiness was sufficient to initiate the contribution proceedings and the WCAB denied reconsideration. The 4th District Court of Appeal affirmed the arbitrator in its summary denial of the case a Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company v. WCAB and Guide One Mutual Insurance Company. In general, the WCAB has inherent power to control its practice and procedure to prevent frustration, abuse, or disregard of its processes. The WCAB has previously concluded a declaration of readiness is sufficient under Rule 10510 to initiate proceedings. Neither Labor Code Section 5500.5 or Rule 10510 specify that a petition is required in this circumstance. Labor Code 5500.5 Subdivision E does not specify what document must be used to initiate a contribution proceeding, and Rule 10510 contains an explicit exception for the use of a declaration of readiness. 
And the Court of Appeal ruled that a successor corporation is not insured by the existing comp policy of the older organization. In this case, Liberty Mutual Fire Insurance <clears throat> issued a workers' compensation and general liability insurance policies to Shea Homes since 2010. All of the contractors working at Shea Projects were insured under these policies. Falcon Framing Company and Shea entered into a construction contract for the Shea Seaside Project in Encinitas, California. But in 2012, Falcon formed a new corporate entity named FFC Incorporated. FFC conducted the same business at the same office with the same customers, suppliers, and equipment as Falcon, and Falcon was dissolved on August 12, 2012. Falcon did not notify Shea or Liberty Mutual that they had dissolved Falcon and were continuing their business operations through FFC until Mark, Mark Corbett, an FFC employee, suffered catastrophic injuries while working at the Shea Seaside Project. At the time of the accident, Falcon had been paid in full for the Seaside Project and had paid all of the premiums for the Liberty Mutual policy issued to Falcon. FFC tendered the workers' compensation claim to Liberty Mutual and to Zenith, the company who had issued a workers' compensation policy to Falcon for work on projects other than the Shea job sites. Liberty Mutual denied coverage for the claim, so Zenith paid more than $3 million to resolve the claim and then filed an action against Liberty Mutual to recover this money. The trial court ruled that the Liberty policy did not provide coverage to FFC for Corbett's injuries and that Liberty had no obligation to indemnify or reimburse Zenith for sums paid on FFC's workers' compensation claim. The Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case of Zenith versus Liberty Mutual Fire Insurance Company. The court held that FFC is not an insured under the Liberty policy terms. Zenith provided no legal support for its contention that the successor corporation of a named insured employer and a workers' compensation policy acquires the named insured's rights under the policy. Falcon's failure to notify Liberty of its dissolution and the formation of FFC after the date of the policy's inception did not extend coverage to FFC. The plain language of the Liberty policy does not provide coverage to FFC. And our crime report. Federal officials announced a historic nationwide criminal enforcement action involving 345 charged defendants across 51 federal districts. This includes more than 100 doctors, nurses, and other licensed medical professionals. These defendants have been charged with submitting more than $6 billion in false and fraudulent claims to federal health care programs and private insurers. This sum includes more than $4.5 billion connected to telemedicine, more than $845 million connected to substance abuse treatment facilities or sober homes, 
and more than $806 million conducted to other healthcare fraud and illegal opioid distribution schemes across the country. U.S. attorneys said that this nationwide enforcement operation is historic in both its size and scope, alleging billions of dollars in healthcare fraud across the country. The largest amount of alleged fraud loss charged in connection with these cases was the $4.5 billion in allegedly false and fraudulent claims submitted by more than 86 criminal defendants in 19 judicial districts that relate to schemes involving telemedicine. Defendant telemedicine executives allegedly paid doctors and nurse practitioners to order unnecessary durable medical equipment, genetic and other diagnostic testing, and pain medications, either without any patient interaction or with only a brief telephonic conversation with patients they had never met or seen. Durable medical equipment companies, genetic testing laboratories, and pharmacies then purchased those orders in exchange for illegal kickbacks and bribes. The Sober Homes cases included charges against more than a dozen criminal defendants in connection with more than $845 million of allegedly false and fraudulent claims for tests and treatments for vulnerable patients seeking treatment for drug or alcohol addiction. The subjects of the charges included physicians, owners and operators of substance abuse treatment facilities, as well as patient recruiters, referred to in the industry as body brokers. The cases involving the illegal prescription and distribution of opioids or that fall into more traditional categories of health care fraud. Part of the charges announced as part of this historical nationwide enforcement action, and since its inception in March 2007, the Health Care Fraud Strike Force Program has charged more than 4,200 defendants who have collectively billed the Medicare program for about $19 billion. San Diego-based Pharmatech Incorporated and its CEO and founder, Tuan Pham, have agreed to pay more than $3 million to resolve allegations that they violated the False Claims Act by submitting false claims for laboratory drug testing services. Pharmatech is a medical technology company that manufactures diagnostic devices and provides laboratory testing including for drugs and alcohol. Pharmatech allegedly improperly paid a medical clinic to induce it to refer orders for laboratory drug testing to Pharmatech in violation of the federal anti-kickback statute and the False Claims Act. Specifically, Pharmatech paid kickbacks to Imperial Valley Wellness, a medical practice group, to induce the group to order laboratory testing for its patients enrolled in Medicare. Pharmatech allegedly paid a per-specimen fee in exchange for referral of urine samples from Medicare beneficiaries. Many of the samples set for testing under this arrangement were not medically necessary and therefore not lawfully eligible for reimbursement. 
The whistleblower in this case will receive slightly more than a half million dollars from the settlement proceeds. And in regulatory news, Sedgwick has added a solution to its technology suite of services that streamlines the submission process for California employers who are now required under new legislation to report and determine COVID-19 workplace outbreaks. On September 17, 2020, Governor Newsom signed SB 1159, which expands workers' compensation injury claims to include illnesses or death from COVID-19. The new law requires employers to calculate outbreaks using specific criteria and report all positive tests to their workers' compensation claims administrator. The new law took effect immediately and includes this added responsibility for employers and administrators. Employers are now required to report to their claims administrator within 30 business days of the effective date of SB 1159, when and how many employees in California tested positive for COVID-19 between July 6 and September 17, 2020. From September 18 onward, employers must report positive tests within three business days, as well as the largest number of employees who have worked at the infected location in the 45 days preceding the last day the positive employee was in the place of employment. To ease the process for California employers, Sedgwick has launched a COVID-19 intake portal for reporting positive test results. Sedgwick's intake platform provides an easy-to-use and secure cloud-based system to initiate the process of recording positive tests and exposure events tied to COVID-19 in the workplace. Sedgwick's objective was to provide an appropriate, effective, and efficient means to help its clients meet their compliance requirements. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau has published its report on insurer loss and premium experience as of June 30, 2020. Written premium for the first two quarters of 2020 is 11% below that for the first two quarters of 2019. The large decrease in premium for the second quarter of 2020 was driven by the sudden and sharp downturn in the economy. The average charge rate for the first two quarters of 2020 was 8% below that for 2019 and 40% below the peak in 2014. The January 1, 2020 approved advisory pure premium rates are on average 47% below those for January 1, 2015. The projected combined ratio for 2019 is 8 points higher than 2018 and 16 points higher than the low point in 2016 as premium levels have lowered while claim costs increased moderately. Despite the recent increase, combined ratios for 2013 through 2019 are all below 100% and are the lowest since the 2003 through 2007 period of time. Claim activity in the second quarter of 2020 was significantly slower due to the pandemic and shelter-in-place period, 
and may not be indicative of future claim activity. And indemnity claims have settled quicker over the last several years, largely driven by SB 863 and SB 1160 reforms. Average claim closing rates declined sharply in the second quarter of 2020 as a result of the pandemic and shelter-in-place period. Incremental reported claims have generally increased through 2019. Reported indemnity claims in the second quarter of 2020 were 10% lower than the second quarter of 2019, while medical-only claims were one-third lower. The recent lower claim counts are likely due to the slowdown of economic activity, less work being done outside the home, and delays in reporting of claims during the shelter-in-place period. The number of liens filed in 2019 and 2020 are more than 60% below the pre-SB 1160 and AB 1244 levels. Lien filings decreased in the first two quarters of 2020, although some of the decrease is likely due to the pandemic. The deadline for Governor Newsom to act on bills lawmakers have passed has now concluded for the year. It kept a tumultuous legislative session that was delayed three times because of the pandemic. In a normal year, more than 1,000 bills would have made it to Newsom's desk. This year, it was just a few hundred of them. Labor unions were disappointed to see him veto two of their biggest issues, a bill that would sought to guarantee laid-off hospitality workers would be first in line to get their jobs back once those industries started rehiring, and another one that would have extended health and safety protections to domestic workers. In a victory for business groups, Newsom vetoed Assembly Bill 3216, a proposed law that would have required the employers in certain industries such as hotels, private clubs, airports, or who provide building services to commercial buildings to rehire laid-off workers when they decided it was time to increase their workforces once again. Newsom said in his veto message that as drafted, the bill's prescriptive provisions would take effect during any state of emergency for all layoffs, including those that may be unrelated to such emergency thus tying the bill's provisions to a state of emergency would create a confusing patchwork of requirements in different counties at different times. He also said the bill also risks the sharing of too much personal information of hired employees. Nonetheless, many of California's largest cities, including Los Angeles, Long Beach, San Francisco, and Oakland, have enacted their own rehiring ordinances in response to the pandemic. And California law already had worker retention laws for the janitorial industry and the grocery industry. Newsom also vetoed SB 1257, a bill that would have included about 11 million California homes and apartments under Cal OSHA's jurisdiction. His veto message proclaimed that new laws in this area must recognize that the places where people live cannot be treated in the exact same manner as traditional workplace or work sites from a regulatory perspective. 
He went on to say that SB 1257 would extend many employer obligations to private homeowners and renters, including the duty to create an injury prevention plan and requirement to conduct outdoor heat trainings. Many individuals to whom this law would apply lacked the expertise to comply with these regulations. He said the bill would also put into a statute a potentially onerous and protracted investigation by letter procedure between Cal OSHA and private tenants and homeowners. In short, a blanket extension of all employer obligations to private homeowners and renters is unworkable, he said, and raises significant policy concerns. Uber Technologies and Lyft Together are spending nearly $100 million on Proposition 22, a November California ballot initiative to overturn a state law, AB 5, that would compel them to classify drivers as employees. A Reuters calculation showed that the two ride-hailing companies would each face more than $392 million in annual payroll taxes and workers' compensation costs, even if they drastically cut the number of drivers on their platforms. Using a recently published Cornell University driver pay study in Seattle as a basis, Reuters calculated that each full-time driver would cost the company, on average, an additional $7,700 a year. That includes about $4,560 in annual employer-based California and federal payroll taxes and some $3,140 in annual workers' comp insurance. The companies say they would need to significantly hike prices to offset at least some of those additional costs. Yahoo News reports that Uber and Lyft have also said they would abandon the California market, an economy that would rank fifth in the world if the state were a sovereign nation. Other U.S. states have said they plan to follow California's lead and pass similar laws. A yes vote on California's Proposition 22 gives Uber and Lyft what they seek, which is to overturn the state's gig worker law known as AB5, which took effect in January. Under the company-sponsored ballot measure, gig workers would receive some benefits, including minimum pay, health care subsidies, and accident insurance, but remain independent contractors not entitled to more substantial employee benefits. The question of whether so-called gig workers should be treated as employees has become a national issue in U.S. politics. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden and his running mate, Senator Kamala Harris, have both voiced their strong support for California's labor law and directly called on voters to reject the company's ballot proposal that would weaken it. President Trump has not himself directly weighed in on the ballot measure, but the administrator's Labor Department in September published proposed rules that would standardize legal definitions across the country and provide more room for companies to maintain independent contractors. And U.S. Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia criticized AB5 in an opinion piece published on September 22nd. California represents 9% 
or roughly $1.63 billion in all of 2019, of Uber's global rides and food delivery gross bookings. However, California generates a negligible amount of adjusted earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Lynch, which operates only in the United States and does not have a food delivery business, in August said California makes up about 16% of the company's total rides. Lyft does not break out ride-hailing revenue, but California contributed $576 million as a share of its total 2019 revenue. And in medical news, several cervical artificial disc technologies have been developed to replace degenerated intervertebral discs in the cervical spine. While no artificial disc can perfectly replace a natural disc's ability to cushion and transfer loads in the neck, an artificial disc may maintain more of the cervical spine's natural range of motion compared to fusion surgery. Artificial discs are available in various sizes, shapes, and heights in order to achieve these goals and provide good surgical outcomes. Several types of discs have been fabricated using different materials, designs, and techniques. And now a California company has just obtained FDA approval for another promising product. Simplify Disc is a motion-preserving cervical artificial disc designed to allow for advanced imaging capability of MRI to better match its patient's anatomical characteristics and for physiological movement. The three-piece disc with a semi-constrained mobile core is designed to mimic or replace the natural biomechanical motion of a healthy disc. Implantation of the simplified disc is accomplished in a straightforward three-step procedure. Simplify Medical is a privately held company headquartered in Sunnyvale, California, and they are the developer of Simplify Cervical Artificial Disc. The company just announced U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval for the Simplify Disc pre-market application for one-level indications. Simplify Disc achieved superiority to the fusion control on a composite primary endpoint. The prospective trial enrolled 166 Simplify Disc patients at 16 clinical sites across the United States, and the results were compared with a historical fusion control. Simplify Disc was used for one-level cervical implantation between the C3 to C7 vertebrae. The study results demonstrated that Simplify Disc achieved superiority in overall success compared to anterior cervical discectomy and fusion at 24 months. The Simplify Disc overall success rate of 93% was statistically superior to the fusion overall success rate of only 73.6%. Simplified disc patients had a higher rate of improvement in neurological function at 79.9 compared to fusion at 54.7.
significantly fewer simplified disc patients were taking narcotic pain medication compared to fusion patients. The simplified disc is also being evaluated now for two-level indications. Other industry news, Palo Alto-based Next Insurance announced the availability of its workers' compensation offering to 24 additional states across the nation, including Alabama, Iowa, Louisiana, and Virginia. This expansion increases the company's overall workers' compensation coverage in the U.S. to more than 50%, now equipping small business owners in 30 states with what it says is affordable, hassle-free policies. Next Insurance provides business owners a seamless way to obtain an instant quote and explore their coverage options all online. It says small business owners can obtain general liability, professional liability, commercial auto, and workers' compensation coverage all under its one roof. Next Insurance said it will steadily expand workers' compensation in additional states in 2021. With Next Insurance, insureds have access to USA-based licensed insurance advisors, tools, and services, like 24-7 access to certificates of insurance from a mobile device or a computer, and in-house claims filings where a decision is typically made within 48 hours. The company is headquartered in Palo Alto, California, and was founded in 2016. It has received a total of $631 million in venture capital funding and has been recognized by Forbes Fintech 50, JMP Securities Insuratech 50, and Forbes Best Startup Employers. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.